Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is Tuesday, February 9th, 2010. Welcome to the Future of Education. Our guest tonight is Lisa Gillis. Lisa, glad to have you here. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here as well. Uh, this is fun for us, very exciting. We did have Elizabeth on, your co-author from your book, Virtual Schooling, some weeks yes. ago. Yep, I know. She And she did a fantastic job. It was thrilling to see her online and, uh, and doing the presentation. And then you were actually in the show <laughs> when it occurred to us that we hadn't, uh, that we needed to hear from you. <laughs> and so uh, you were nice enough to schedule. So I'm going to do a quick overview. Uh, Learn Central is the sponsor of the Future of Education. Uh, come to LearnCentral.org and educational network for educators. Coming up on Conversations.net and FutureofEducation.com, you'll see a fun list here. Um, Larry Johnson actually canceled tomorrow night. He had a, a family situation come up, and so uh, he will not be on tomorrow night. We'll put a notice up uh, wherever you saw notices of his speaking. He's going to reschedule. Clay Shirky, because of the snow and a meeting, some meeting he had in Washington, D.C., had to cancel this week as well. And he's rescheduled already for February 18th. That's the So next week will be a big week, and Pink and Clay Shirky. And so lots of fun. Look through that list. Susan Patrick is coming on. Uh, on the 25th, Lisa, so it'll be fun to hear again. And um, hopefully there's something there that's of interest to some of you and you'll come back and participate. If this is your first time in Illuminate, we do want you to know how to, to uh, work in this in interactive environment. This is a participative environment. You have a chance to um, do a variety of things here. If you look just below the participant window, you'll see a place where you can raise your hand. So if you think you'd like to ask a question using your microphone, you can click that icon with a hand and the green up arrow. It's best to go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard just to make sure that your audio is working well. Uh, you've also got an ability to do a green check and a red X. Those are for yes and no. And there's a clapping hand, a smiley face, a confused look, and a thumbs down. Um, you can send chat messages. Uh, those are encouraged. You can send chat messages to each other. They're private, but Lisa and I do see those as moderators, so nothing's fully private in this environment. Now I'm going to give you a chance to let us know where you're listening from. And on the map, to the left of the map, you'll see a wand with a red star at the end. Click on that, and then click on the map. Our friends in the snowy northeast will show up. Purdy from India, hope, hopefully you'll Place yourself on the map. Good, and feel free to shout out. <coughs> excuse me. Feel free to shout out in the chat where you're listening from, and, and of course what the weather's like if you're experiencing severe weather. Sure, great to have you here. Okay, so now I'm going to turn the time over to you, Lisa. Maybe you, while I'm uploading your slides, you could give us a little bit of an introduction, um, what your current work is, and um, um, maybe sort of how you got here, and then we'll come back and let you start the slides. 
Well, thank you, Steve. And that's actually one of the first slides I have. So um, we're diving right into the presentation. Welcome, everybody. And thank you so much for joining us this evening. I am absolutely sure that you are here because you, you share the same passion that we have, which is the promotion of online education. Uh, my name is Lisa Gillis, and I am the co-author of Virtual Schooling, A Guide to Optimizing Your Child's Education, which was published this last June by Macmillan, Paul Grade Macmillan. And my two co-authors are Elizabeth Kamet and Christina Culver. So together, we, came to, um, we saw that we had very different perspectives, and together formed a really great um, team to present to parents all over. Uh, Elizabeth came from years and years of homeschooling and virtual schooling experience as both a parent and also as a businesswoman. Uh, she owns her own business. And Christina came from the U.S. Department of Education and kind of was on the policy side of things. So it was really fun to put our heads together and just uh, produce this work. So that's uh, virtual schooling. And um, uh, for me, Personally, I have over uh, 20 years of experience in public education, uh, all the way from a classified to a teacher to a school administrator, site administrator, and uh, working my way up to uh, I was overseeing in school management a network of virtual charter schools in the state of California with over 6,000 students and 350 teachers. Uh, and then I have worked in special ed and have also um, currently am the Director of Government Affairs, School Development, and Board Relations for Insight Schools, uh, Inc., which is, uh, we, we have schools in eight different states. We have nine schools in eight different states. And we specialize in online high school building, developing, managing, uh, and uh, implementing high quality online high schools. So over the years, I've become very passionate about empowering both parents and educators on the, the limitless um, adventures that we have in online education. I myself uh, is also, um, I'm also a virtual schooling parent. So I kind of fell into this. People ask me all the time, uh, you know, how in the world as a teacher in the classroom did you get into this? And my heart was really, um, I'll never forget the day that, you know, being in the classroom, I, I saw kids who didn't quite fit the mold. They didn't quite fit the eight to three classroom mold. And I saw them being frustrated. And as hard as we tried, we couldn't get these kids to really be as successful as they could be and maybe a, perhaps an alternative environment. So as a result of that, um, and I had some personal challenges myself. I have four kids. And one of my, um, one of my, my twins uh, was actually born with some significant visual impair impairments. And he was on an IEP when he was three years old. And uh, I walked through the system as a parent of a special needs kid, as a parent of a gate child. Um, and so I've kind of experienced all of it. I've, my oldest son graduated from Harvard. My twins had a gate child and an IEP child. And then uh, my daughter currently is a senior in high school. And, and I really saw things from both a parent's and an educator's perspective. And as I was walking through these issues with my own child, I went all the way up to the Department of Education at the state level trying to get assistance for my child. And um, 
I, I, I couldn't. So I went to my superintendent at the time and said, I want to start a, an alternative ed program. And he graciously not only allowed me to do that, but supported me in the process. And I was the director of an independent state program at a traditional brick and mortar school for seven years. And our program went on to become nominated to win awards. And it was a blended program where we actually blended all sorts of things like um, on-site instruction, home instruction, all of that. So um, uh, I, that's been, I've been doing this since 1996. And that's been my passion. And through, through the years, I have found myself working at all different levels. And, and now um, I've helped to develop schools. Uh, gosh, I've lost count, but maybe 15 different states. Uh, so what I want to share with you tonight is about the emerging trends of online education. About um, just, I want to go over some fast facts for you, and I'm sure that you know all of them. So if if you don't, it's a great review. If you do, if you if you don't know them, then I think you'll, um, as they say, wet your whistle for. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm looking at the slide. Sorry, getting a little distracted by that. For how great and wonderful online education can be, I'm going to be talking a little bit about some considerations on how you want to, if you want to start your own school, how you go about that. And I'm kind of doing a high-level overview today. And I'd be more than happy to have a deeper dive discussion with anybody that's interested from any of the topics you hear tonight. So um, that's my introduction. And um, Steve, I'll give it back to you. I think if you want to go into So I'll let you guide the slides at this point. I had to do the conversion from the PowerPoint to OpenOffice, and I'll just show you briefly how bad that slide looks. But I think all the rest are good. <laughs> that one, it didn't make it. It didn't come through OK. But, um, so I'm, if I leave you here, is this a good place for you to start? That would be great. I'd be more than happy to. Okay. Absolutely. Now, doesn't, doesn't Elizabeth have four children? Is that, am I remembering correctly? She has three. She has oh, three daughters. Three. Yeah, three girls, um, three beautiful girls, actually. And um, they are all the way from um, uh, upper, I believe her youngest is now in eighth grade this year, maybe ninth grade. And her oldest is in college. So we have kids about the same age. And um, she's, she has, her husband is also a public school teacher for the, in Davis and very much of an education-rich family. Uh, and has taken these girls all the way through from kindergarten through college. And if I missed it while you were introducing yourself and I was um, getting the slides up, where are you based? I am um, in ba I'm well. <laughs> I, I say people ask me where I'm based. I say Delta Airlines <laughs> because <laughs> that's where I, I go all over the country. But I live in Northern California, in San, uh, Santa Rosa area by Sonoma County, and my office is actually in Portland. Uh, is where Insight Schools Inc. is located. Uh, is in Portland, Oregon, and then uh, all over, as I said. So. Great. Well, we're sure <laughs> glad to have you here, and that's, we'll have you go through. If you have a question while Lisa's talking, please feel free to put it in the chat. Uh, I'm going to try and capture those so that we, when we get to Q&A, we can talk about them. You're certainly welcome to, if there's something that you'd like to ask that's immediately pertinent to the material, do feel free to raise your hand, and, um, and we'll let you ask your question at the time. And we'll turn it over to you, Lisa. Terrific. Well, again, thank you for letting me come. And I'm looking forward to everybody's questions and just getting this discussion going. So 
let's um, skip right over that and to the Time Magazine uh, in 12 uh, December of 06. There is a remarkable consensus among educators and business and policy leaders on one key conclusion, and that is that we need to bring what we teach and how we teach into the 21st century. And I know that you would think that that's kind of a no-brainer, but that's something that we hang our hats on in virtual education, that we really need to prepare our students and for the global marketplace, we need to begin teaching them skills now of how to be great online learners because once they get into the global marketplace, they are going to be needing those skills. So uh, one of the things that I wanted to bring to your attention today is just kind of some online learning facts. Uh, perhaps, like I said, some of you have seen this. If not, uh, it might open your eyes. But Currently, more than 70% of school districts in the United States offer online courses. And you can see the facts down here. 35 states have state virtual schools. 45 states have significant state policies. 25 states allow full-time virtual charter schools. One in five undergraduate and graduate student enrolls in an online course in higher education. And uh, currently, this did cut off, but you'll see at 2000, in the year 2000, there were 50,000 enrollments in the K-12 online courses. In the year 2008, there was a million. So you can see how it has really escalated the pace as we've gone on. So um, a couple of things on this slide that I wanted to bring to your attention. Uh, number one, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Keeping Pace report, but it was just published in October of 2009. Keeping Pace is kind of the industry standard of what's happening in online learning. So if you don't know about it, um, you absolutely just Google Keeping Pace. You can go to the website. You can download the PDF. It is a phenomenal resource that talks about the, the trending in virtual education as well as a state-by-state -state analysis of what's going on in the policy of those states, some recent developments, and uh, it's just, if you're into online education, it's a wonderful resource. So keeping pace, you'll definitely want to, uh, to, to, to know that resource. Um, Steve, go ahead. So uh, Norman asks, are these facts public schools? So do these statistics reflect public schools? These are, these are public schools, and that's how we are going to focus our um, our conversation this evening. Thank you, Norman, for asking that and for also that, that clarifying question. So I'll be talking a little bit tonight about the different types of virtual schooling in public schools, but yes, public schools. Okay, and you know Michael Horn. I think you said you've spoken with him or spoken in, in, in events with him. Uh, you know, the disrupting class model makes some pretty staggering predictions about online learning. Are they in line with the kinds of things you're seeing? Absolutely. In fact, you know, of course, the famous quote from their book is that by the year 2014, was it, that 50% of, of online instruction at the high school level, 50%, help me out, Steve. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I don't. I didn't have the statistic at my fingertips, or I would have said it. But it was some. It's fifty percent within some short period of time, right? Bottom line: Hey, this is going to be a disruptive technology, and fifty percent of kids are going to be taking an online class. And I think it's by two. It's in the next ten years from when the book was published. So, how do you like that? So lesson number one: Never quote things until you've got them thoroughly memorized. <laughs> Hey, I think I have a link for the Keeping Pace report. Is it uh, www.kpk12.com? That's right, KPK12, right, KP, yeah. Keeping Pace, exactly right. I'm yep. putting that in the chat there, and that's where you can see, it uh, looks like you can download the reports there as well. 
That's absolutely right. And uh, it's a, just a great, great resource. So let's go on to the next slide. Um, all right. Oh, it so, looks crummy. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. That's, that's okay. That open office um, conversion just didn't do it, did it? Uh, well, we tried, didn't we? Um, okay, so let's talk about this. Uh, just read through the uh, the click to edit master textiles, and um, basically what I wanted to show you here was the different types of programs that are available. So if you look at the top, at the, at the very front uh, top level, you have the different types. You have two primary types, supplemental and full time, and a lot of times people who are in um, who are in school districts, they'll think this is a really, really key point to understand is they think you know all virtual education is the same when in fact it's totally different. So if you have a supplemental course at the district level that's very different than a student would be experiencing in a full-time online school, whether that be a district program school, a, a school, a standalone school, or uh, a charter school, it looks very different. So I wanted to call that to your attention. Um, the, the reach is district all the way to global. The type is district. You can see, read that for yourself. Uh, location, uh, school, home, and other others of blended schools. We're going to be talking a little bit about how blended is really making the emergence into the market and how that's going to be the trending in education as we move forward. Asynchronous and synchronous. Um, uh, that means, just in case you don't know, what asynchronous means is that it's um, done basically kind of like independent study. The student goes into the online school or in their online course. They can uh, get their lessons for the day. They do their work either online or offline, depending upon what the course tells them to do. And then they report that you can actually, they usually take quizzes within the online school itself, which is then fed to the teacher, and the teacher can monitor the progress of the student. Synchronous means it's in real time. So what we're doing right here in the Illuminate classroom, this is synchronous. Um, so this is where teachers, uh, what you are experiencing is exactly what a lot of our students experience, where the teacher will come in and do a PowerPoint presentation. They might do a media tour, very interactive. You, using this Illuminate platform, you can actually break students out into groups. So there can be, you can say, okay, you four go over here in this breakout room number one and give them a topic to discuss, and then they can come back together. So this is called asynchronous. We are in it together. We're learning together. and um, that's what that means. Operational control from local board to independent vendor. Uh, that's basically who sponsors the school. So, and that and that's something to every state's different. And uh, whether you even whether you have a, a charter school, it could be a dependent charter school, an independent uh, charter. So that means the governance structure. Either you're governed by the board of education of the school district or an independent non not-for-profit board, a 501c3 that will be operating charter schools. So there's a lot of different governance structures as well. Um, the 50% by 2019 is based on Christensen's horn speculation. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate that. Um, so, so Lisa, it actually Kay says above, it's by 2019, 50% of high school courses will be delivered online. So that's really dramatic. That is dramatic, and um, that goes to our discussion of uh, supplemental versus full time. So a lot of people, uh, if you think about the supplemental meaning one course at a time, 
for a wide variety of different reasons to either increase your course catalog or to um, supplement what you're doing in your in your school for credit recovery for gifted and talented education. There are endless possibilities that you can do with online courses. And when they make that prediction, that's what they're saying is that the, the, the disruptive technology will get to the point where we will look at that and you have a school district in a rural area that says, gosh, well, I've got five students that want to take a AP calculus, but I can't afford to bring a teacher in for five students. They can take that online. Or you have one student that needs a particular class, you can import that online and provide those services to that student. So. Yeah, and I think their predictions are based, uh, although they're sort of rationalized by the events taking place, they're more predictions based on their mathematical model of what happens with disruptive technologies. So we may not know exactly how we're going to get there, but they would say, hey, in this kind of a disruptive situation, this is the model we think will play out. That's right. That's right. So I wanted to I wanted to comment quickly on this chart. I think aside from the fact that we had a conversion issue here, it's pretty complicated. And I think that comes through in your book as well, which is that there's just an enormous variety in terms of how online schooling or virtual schooling takes place. Um, do, do people feel overwhelmed when they see just the enormity of the or the diversity of ways in which this can happen? Uh, exactly. And that is exactly right. And you know, when we were writing the book, we actually had that those discussions over and over again of how do you take a movement, really, uh, what what we consider a movement, a disruptive technology, and kind of wrap your arms around it so that people can understand it. And when you're living it, breathing it, you kind of get it. But even when you get it, it changes on a day-by-day -day basis with new in inventions and new introductions in the marketplace of support technology. So um, exactly to your point, the good and the bad of that, the bad is that there's a lot to choose from. The good is there's a lot to choose from. So never before have we had the op options and opportunities to really shape a unique and individualized education for our students. Um, so with that, I will go ahead and move to the next page, which is um, what I wanted to do here was just kind of highlight some of the different categories. So you can even say state virtual school, multi-district, single district consortium, and post-secondary, and what those all look like. And then some examples that are currently functioning in those um, programs in the United States. All right. Um, so uh, Deborah. What kind of costs are we looking at to virtual for four years of high school? I'm going to actually get to that. So thank you for bringing that up. I wanted to highlight here states with statewide full-time online schools. Um, so these are schools that have, um, uh, like for instance, in California, uh, we have uh, different programs that offer uh, schools statewide. Arizona, there there are virtual academies that operate um, by some of the leading providers, such as um, we have like Connections Academy, K-12 Insight Schools, uh, different local statewide. Um, Arkansas Virtual Academy, yes, that's right. Um, so lots of different types of academies that operate statewide full-time schools. Now these are states with state virtual schools, and that's a little bit different from the slide that we talked about before. And then I wanted to uh, go through the state virtual school size and growth. This is 08-09. So if you look at 
the just in one year, the type of growth in Florida alone, 154,125 students now taking at least one course. This is not full-time students, it's course enrollments. And then if you go all the way down to like Iowa, grow, grew by 693. Now the, the, the thing that's important when you look at this slide is that all of these states are showing some form of growth. And if you look and you say, well, why does Maryland only have 710 versus Florida, 154,000? That's policy. It's what's allowed in the school. To your point exactly, Jason, um, limited virtual schools in North Carolina. That's because North Carolina has rules and regulations. There are different states with rules that say like um, you can or cannot have virtual schools. You uh, have enrollment caps on virtual schools. And some states are just completely supportive, like Florida, of virtual education. And you can see the difference there. So what this slide really points out is that once the opportunity is given to students in those states, nine students, but school districts and parents, they jump on it and they take full advantage of it. Um, yes, Me again. Go ahead. So what's the difference between an online school and a virtual school? Uh, nothing. Those, those words are used interactive. You'll, see, you'll hear a lot of terms that are interactively used, such as cyber schools, online schools, virtual schools. Um, basically, that, that means it's all the same. Now, if you, we talked about online learning, that could be a student taking an online course in a supplemental uh, uh, form versus states with statewide. Uh, so you wanted me to explain the difference between these two slides? Well, yeah, I looked at the slide and I said, oh, there's Pennsylvania, because I know I go to Pennsylvania and I hear about their cyber charter. And that, that, that was a full-time online school. And then here, it's a states with state virtual schools. So maybe my question is, what's the difference between a state virtual school and a full-time online school? Oh, well, one is run by the state. Right, usually through the Department of Education. And it's usually a state virtual school. It can be a program or it could be a school. It, it really varies by state. And that's where that Keeping Pace report comes in, where it breaks it down on a state-by-state -state basis. So I'd really encourage you to go to that and look at your particular state. Because even from a state virtual school, it can be uh, supplemental, where you can take one course, but you have to be enrolled in your local school district. And that course is provided by the State Department of Education to your school district. There are other states that actually have virtual schools run through the Department of Ed where the students enroll in that school. So it varies state to state. Great. Didn't mean to derail you there. No problem at all. Uh, and so basically, the purpose of this slide is to show you that some form of virtual education is taking place in these states, whether these states allow for full-time virtual schools, where they allow for supplemental uh, online education. Uh, as you can see, there's only seven states that do not have any form of virtual education at, the, at this point. And we'll move on to the next slide. This just kind of shows you, these numbers are staggering when you really look at them. And you think about the annual rate of growth that these um, uh, different types of programs, both full-time and supplemental, are um, showing. And uh, here, the trends, uh, here's what we see as trends moving uh, 2010 and beyond, is that we really see that we're going to have continued growth. But a lot of this growth to online learning is going to be shifting to districts. Um, we predict that a lot of the growth, that what we're going to see is um, more of the supplemental 
type of online learning catching on and more districts reaching out and providing those for their students. And this is also, we, we believe that there's going to be an increase in what we call the blended model. Blended model is different, uh, again, different types of definitions, but so the blended model, um, if you have, if you have full-time virtual students that come to a site uh, to take maybe a science lab or uh, some other course on site, that's one form. Or you can have on-site students who are in the traditional brick and mortar now taking a class online. So um, we have, and then you have a different model like Voices in Chicago, where the kids actually come to a site, but 100% of their instruction is done online. So they come in, and there's a laptop there for every student, and the teacher is more of a facilitator, helping the students work through their unique lesson plans. So there's lots of different models of blended, but people in the field and educators really see this as the future of education is integrating these different types of models to create the best educational program. So how much of this is driven by the economics for schools and how much is driven by say parents or students or teachers desiring the model? Um, great question, and I would say that uh, they go hand in hand, but I think that there's been a little bit of a shift. So prior to this year and last year when we had a lot of the uh, economic cutbacks in school budgets, I would say it was more driven by parents understanding and seeing the need and the power of it. And as this explosive growth has occurred, you know, parents talk and they see what their other kids are doing and they get excited about it and they want to be able to offer it to their kids. And kids, students, especially at the high school level, are finding more and more, they, they have an older brother or sister that's at the university and they're studying online and they want that for themselves. So that's been a lot of the driving force in combination with faculty members at traditional high schools, faculty members, professionals in the education field who have been promoting online education for 10, 15 years uh, and really heralding it as we need to get this more commonplace in all of our brick and mortar schools. They've been the primary voices. In this last year or two, when we've seen so many cutbacks, all of a sudden the conversation has turned. And we've seen a lot of school districts saying, well, gosh, maybe this can be more efficient. So currently, I think it's a question of both. But that leads to the whole discussion of if you're a school district and you're wanting to start an online program, then there are a lot of considerations. We'll actually be talking about that a little bit later. But a lot of considerations. And, and it's not as, uh, you know, there's a fallacy and a big myth that, oh, I've got you know, a tech guy over here who can put together some kind of online course and we'll just roll it out to our kids. And if you have a really great tech guy, maybe that can happen, but that's more the exception than a rule. So there's a lot to uh, curriculum development, to program development within the online courses itself, a lot more than people understand. And you really want to have a high quality, engaging, interactive experience for your students. Um, what about schools that are looking at students who've dropped out or are, you know, are homeschooling, uh, trying to bring them back into the traditional system for the purposes of, um, you know, meeting their their financial needs? Uh, meeting whose financial needs? Well, I'm sorry. Well, um, this is informed by just some some local discussions I've had, where where the local school organization is saying we really want to bring those kids back in to recover the the daily allowance that we would be getting for those students because they've dropped out. Right. So um, both. 
Uh, certainly, school districts are looking at ways to, quote, recapture enrollment to students who have left not only to online education, but they've dropped out, they've gone to private schools, they've gone to home schools, and they're, they're wanting to know what is it the students need, want, and that we can provide as a district to bring them back into the system. This is um, one of the things, it's a perfect segue into just a little um, background on what um, my, my school does, Insight Schools. It's high school only, and we specifically are uh, targeting dropouts. So in some of our, in our student population last year, approximately 40% of our students were previously dropped out of school. Our schools are public schools. They're sponsored by different districts, and, uh, and they have different, we have charter schools, we have district run programs, depends upon what state um, the schools are operating in. But uh, from personal experience, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I think we have a lot of misconceptions about what dropouts are. But, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation just put out, uh, a couple years ago, put out a, a report, a finding stating that um, the kids, they say that 88% of the kids that they interviewed who had dropped out of school did not drop out because they were academically failing, but they dropped out because of life circumstances. So maybe they had to go to work. Maybe um, they were an Olympic athlete or had dreams of going to Olympics and they wanted to train and they couldn't go to a brick and mortar eight to three job. Maybe they got pregnant. Maybe, I mean, all sorts of, or maybe they wanted to choose homeschooling. All sorts of different reasons why kids cannot fit into the eight to three segment. Online learning can absolutely be a solution for them. So, um, just, just as a personal, just today, actually, um, I was flying in from the, from the East Coast and I flew to the West Coast and my son, who's a senior in college, I asked him to pick me up uh, from the airport and as he pulled up to the baggage claim, I got in and I, I laughed because he was actually, quote, in class. He was taking an online class through his university and he got in the back seat and, just, and he had his Illuminate on and his computer and he had a very interactive class and I just thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is. The class of tomorrow today, there were, you know, over 100 students in this class, and here he was at the airport picking me up and still engaging in a very real discussion, and it just brought home to me the power of any place, anytime learning. Um, so let's go on. Um, just some of the, I'll quickly go through some of these uh, slides. Uh, this is really, we really think um, the continued growth is going to go. Uh, virtual schools, online schools, districts will continue to add. And as I said, there will be a shift to districts, both full time. But right now, it's not equal across. That's the sad part, is that online education opportunities are not equal everywhere in the United States. Uh, some states are more uh, supportive and open than other states. But um, and at the policy level, that's what we're really working to change. Um, so increase in blended schools, funding the online learning. So now we're going to talk about uh, the funding. So did anybody have any questions? Or Steve, did you want to pop in here before we go to this part of the discussion? You're getting so used to me interrupting you, you figured you ought to, uh, ought to pause for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to try. <laughs> no, I, I'm, well, I'm very curious because of the series that I've um, been doing with Michael Horn and, and InnoSight. Um, and looking at the dollar. So I'm anxious for you to move on. Great. Um, 
Um, thank you. Uh, by the way, just so that you guys know, I'm not really paying attention to the uh, chat box because it's it's distracting me a little bit. So I'm kind of looking away from it. So if you're asking questions, I apologize. I'm not really answering them. But but I'm I know Steve is capturing that. So I am. I'm capturing. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, funding. Let's talk about that because that obviously is a very hot topic. Um, what are the costs of online learning? How do the how do taxpayer dollars flow? Now again, we're talking about pr uh, um, public schools here, and how can it be sustainable? So um, a myth: online learning is is cheap. Just it's a kid, a computer, and stuff on the screen. How much could that cost? Reality is that it is really cost effective, but there are very there are real costs in running an online school, such as expert teachers, high quality curriculum development, licensing, computers, course delivery, data systems. Plus, when you're a school, you're a school. That means that you enroll everybody that wants to come to your public school, including students with special needs, students on IEPs. There are costs to that, and um, physical materials. When you send out books to these students, there are lots of support. We in our schools, we have a principal, we have a counselor. All of our counselors do grad checks on all of the kids, make sure that they've got a graduation plan and that, that they're on track. You know, that all costs money in addition to sending computers out to every student, paying for internet access, hiring NCLB highly qualified uh, instructors for every course. So yes, there is there's definitely costs associated with uh, running a full-time virtual school. So this is the typical online school. You can see that the uh, the average cost for Deborah to answer your question. Um, back, back up at the top, is about six thousand five hundred dollars per student. So uh, this is a breakdown of where the um, the the money generally goes. No, uh, Brian, that's not per class. That's this is if uh, this is making several assumptions. This is per pupil expenditure per year, and um, two semesters, twelve classes. So approximately five to six classes per semester per student. Okay, uh, so here, uh, just to use a, a Wisconsin, this was actually part of a, um, a presentation made to the Wisconsin School Board Association by a director of a public school district who is running a program through her school, and that's six thousand four hundred. I know it's a little blurry. Six thousand four hundred eighty dollars. Uh, when you talk about courses. The uh, the supervision, the computer access, internet stipend. This is the average course that they have uh, in their school. And um, so, but it can be now. If you look at the cost of in in the United States in a traditional brick and mortar school, we spend on average ten thousand dollars per student to educate a child in a brick and mortar setting. So when you look at six thousand five hundred dollars to educate a child in a virtual setting, that is a significant cost savings. Um, the results. Uh, if you look at academic results, are as in most cases are as good or better than students in the um, traditional schools. Of course, that's going to vary state by state, school by school, but um, you can see that this can be a very cost-effective, high-quality method um, if you institute and you build and you implement a high-quality program. I keep emphasizing that because it's very important. It's just like in a traditional classroom if you had a teacher just 
copy off some worksheets, throw it at the kids and say, finish these worksheets, how much are they going to get out of that versus if you had an interactive role-playing multimedia presentation for kids, they're going to be engaged, immersed, and learning. Just do you see the difference in quality of, of um, instructors and courses? You're going to see that in the online environment as well. So I'm talking about the full-time immersive experience uh, for students. So full-time typically are funded through states per pupil funding formula. That means that uh, the students are their charter schools or the programs from districts and the students enroll in that program. Now remember that it will flow to that district or to that school who then hire all the teachers, buy all the books, you know, lease the computers, do whatever. Um, supplemental by the course is typically funded through uh, state appropriation and course fees paid by districts or students. So that's more of a fee for service. So uh, you have a district, you have a student uh, who is um, he was enrolled in ABC school district. That ABC wants to go out and, and um, provide online instruction through the State Department of Education or through uh, another provider. Uh, then they will um, the school district will actually pay for that student to take that course. Um, so there are different kind of. Uh, considerations, again, the different types of models. Seat time versus mastery. Some schools are, it's an attendance-based program. Others are mastery-based program. So uh, mastery means that the, the school uh, doesn't get paid unless the student completes, successfully completes the course, which is with a C or better. Uh, other schools get paid for kids coming to class. And the way we traditionally fund our public education system in, this, in the nation is seat time. You, you're counted, you're in the seat, you're there, attendance is taken, kids are, it's either headcount on account day or day by day average daily attendance or whatever it might be. So it's somewhat innovative and actually, a, in my opinion, a higher standard of education that your kid, in order to be paid, your kids actually have to um, complete successfully complete the course. Imagine what it would be like in a traditional classroom uh, if that was the case. So it's kind of interesting some of the different uh, accountability requirements that are put on online uh, schools versus a traditional brick and mortar. Uh, so opening enrollment and growth access and then uh, supplement, and we can see that as well. So um, some of the things that, that, you know, if you're looking to start a program, you know, where am I going to come up with money for this? Some districts have used textbook dollars, for instance, to invest in online education instead of uh, texting. Others um, have addressed barriers such as seat time, enrollment restrictions, that type of thing. So here are some ways to really develop that sustainable funding model. Uh, and then, of course, the other way is longer term to re really engage with some uh, public-private partnerships to uh, achieve efficiencies, avoid reinventing the wheels, and then uh, having funding all the way down to course by course. So I want to, uh, this is actually a quote that I wrote down, so I'm not doing it um, per a very tired brain, uh, but using the internet to deliver courses seemed to contain the great disruptive potential. It, could allow a radical transformation to happen in an incremental, rational way. And that was a quote by Clayton Christensen uh, in his book, Seeing What's Next. So, um, oh, that didn't come out either very well. So are you interested in offering online courses in high school? Um, 
I will uh, say if this is um, what you're trying to do, then um, certainly uh, these are some things that you want to consider. Number one, can you even do it in your state? Uh, do, the laws allow, uh, do the laws allow for some sort of online um, instruction? Two, do you want to have it full-time or part-time? Three, what's the need in your community? Do a demographic study and find out how many students are actually interested in studying online. What about your faculty? Um, are they interested in offering online courses at your school? Uh, are there any regulations, uh, board policies, uh, anything like that that might prohibit or that you might have to amend or change before being able to offer supplemental or full-time instruction? Um, do you want to start a charter school, online school? And if so, uh, that's a whole different discussion. But certainly, you can, uh, if you want to go full time, you can have charter, uh, you can have um, a program or a district-based school, or just some of the ways that you can offer online full-time programs to your students. Uh, you want to do look at the funding considerations. So, uh, in most states, if a student is enrolled in the school then um, they are funded usually on attendance and it can be taken through the independent study program or if it's a program of the school, you'll just want to make sure that it's funded at the same appropriation and that are there any special considerations, for instance, the mastery-based funding model that you need to uh, be aware of in your state. Uh, faculty uh, considerations, what, what do you have on hand uh, as far as uh, the, the level of expertise in your faculty and the interest level. Do they want to go online? You know, we're seeing more and more and more teachers that would love the opportunity to teach online. I know in our school, for instance, we actually deliver a comprehensive teacher training program where we teach them how to be online instructors because it's actually quite different than instructing in the classroom. So, uh, you know, the classroom management skills, how to design, deliver a, math, uh, a, a lesson within the online setting are all skills that these teachers need to learn. And yet, when they do this, they can go on and they have that tool in their tool chest to be kind of an expert instructor in online learning. And we're seeing that, uh, for instance, at one point I had about 35 openings in the network of charter schools that I was um, an administrator for, and I had over 500 applications for 35 openings. Uh, a lot of these teachers were very hungry to want to start teaching in the online setting. At the high school level, in, in Insight Schools, for instance, uh, a lot of our teachers are part-time. They're teachers that teach in a traditional model. And then uh, they would love uh, the ability to, to take their passion and reach a whole other demographic of kids, those kids that are enrolled online. So we've seen a lot of um, transference of passion and skills and information from our teachers. And not only do the kids get to network with each other, all of a sudden geography is no longer a barrier in online education. You can have a student in Northern California enrolled in the same class and the same you know, course, literature course, as a student in Southern California. And in a traditional school system, they would not have gotten to know each other, but now they're in the same class studying together. Um, you have teachers the same way. You have teachers who are teaching the same course, but one might be in Minnesota and one might be in Kansas, and, and they learn and they teach from each other. So it's really on all different methods a great uh, way to build community that goes beyond the borders of a geographic uh, town or area. And then uh, partnership opportunities, technology. 
what kind of technology do you want to offer computers to all of your uh, students? Or um, you know, if you get into a public school, then it has to be available to them. How are you going to handle that? Are there scholarship funds available? Lots of different considerations. And then partnership. There are lots of people out there who have spent millions of dollars developing wonderful programs. And uh, you know, make yourself uh, aware of who's out there and what they're doing, and uh, what that could mean for implementation at your your local level. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Next, um, and then what makes a high quality program? Uh, I, I just brought this to your attention because a lot of folks uh, that I work with, um, they really are, they've never done online education before. They're really not quite sure what it takes, and and it goes back to that myth that um, it's just you know a computer a kid. How hard can that be? Uh, and and to make a high quality program, you really want to have a diverse course catalog. It's not uncommon to see 120 courses in a course catalog where that's not available at a traditional brick and mortar. So you can expand your options within the courses you can offer. Accreditation, that is so important. Make sure that your, your, your courses are going to be accredited, your school will be accredited, that the student that comes into your school can actually graduate with a high school diploma that's accredited and accepted by universities so they have that onward mobility path. Experience. What kind of experience do you have in your teaching staff, in your administrative staff, uh, in your students? What kind of training programs are you going to run? Um, what, what does the student experience look like? What kind of support programs are you going to put in place? Are you going to offer clubs? Are you going to offer face-to-face uh, -face opportunities for your students? Student government? Uh, all those different initiatives you'll want to consider. Um, what type of technology is available? Full and accurate planning. And then two others that were cut off was policy considerations and then funding levels, which is um, really, really important. Um, so the last screen that I wanted to also bring to your attention is that INACAL right now, for those of you, I'm sure everybody knows INACAL, INACAL.org is a great resource for anybody it's, uh, wanting to know anything about online education. It's a, um, a clearinghouse with information, research, statistics, facts, support groups, and what they're doing right now, they actually have committees that, that support uh, academic achievement, uh, advocacy and issues, uh, all sorts of different types of activities. Um, they support the Virtual School Symposium every year, VSS. This last year we met in, in Austin, Texas, and there was uh, almost, I believe, 1,700 people there, uh, all focused on online learning, and it's expanded globally. So people from other countries, from the United States, all came together focused on the same initiative. So uh, they are currently sponsoring something, uh, a program called How to Start an Online Program. And uh, it's in the final stages of development, but this will be a resource for you that has a website um, with everything, all the questions that you want to um, uh, be answered before you go into this endeavor, uh, policy and planning, uh, practical tips, all of that's going to be on this website uh, for anybody interested in expanding their online learning. So um, with that, I will give it back over to you, Steve. I figured I had to raise my hand just to, to be in, uh, in, to do what I've been doing all night. Hey, you, uh,
you do sound like you're hitting the end of your day, and and I really appreciate your being here. And you, and for you, it's three hours later if you're coming from the East Coast. So you did a terrific job, and I wish the slides had turned out better. One of the questions was, could people get your original slide deck, and is that something you're comfortable making public? Lisa, we lost your audio. If you're Yep, you there we go. Time. Sorry. Uh, yes, actually, I've I've been up since one thirty my time in the morning, <laughs> so I am a little tired. Um, so uh, yes, please email me. Um, I will put my um, my actually personal email in here, and please feel free. Uh, it's uh, Lisa Gillis at Comcast.net, and if you're interested in this presentation, please give me a call or please email me and. Uh, I will. I will communicate. Okay. So uh, one of the things I heard from uh, I don't know if you're still talking, but it seems like you left. Did you stop? No, no I'm here. I'm okay, here. Okay, good. I didn't talk over you. So one of the things that I heard from from what you said there it was very interesting to me because I remember listening to the report from um, from Innosite on the Alpine School District in Utah and. Uh, they sort of negotiated K-12 online down to a you know pretty low rate given uh, the uh, annual amount that they get for students per year in Utah, and so I think there maybe people are harboring this hope that this can be really inexpensive. And I think what I heard you say is this is not a you know significantly less expensive than traditional schooling. It can be just as complex and just as um, costly as to do traditional schooling. So then the question will become for a lot of people, are there sort of definitive results? Can you look, aside from the fact that maybe we can, we can agree that it's reaching students who would otherwise not be reached or who have dropped out, but for those students who are already in school, do you have any understanding or statistics on how they do compared to if they had stayed in a traditional school environment? Well, let me um, correct one thought, um, and that is that it's not, uh, so the average cost of educating a student in a traditional brick and mortar in the United States is uh, about $10,000 a student. The average cost of educating a student in a full-time cyber school, uh, online school, is about $6,500 to $7,000 a student. So it's not as expensive, but it's also not as inexpensive as it is just buying a course. And that's the key point that we want to really emphasize is that when you run a school, you run a school. And you have all of the costs associated with that. A lot of people have a big misconception that, gosh, I can go out there and buy a class, an online course for three to four hundred dollars a student, and if I multiply that, you know, times five or six, and that, you know, that's three, four thousand dollars, but they're forgetting all of the support um, all of the support structure that's involved in that. So that's the key point there. It, it does cost money to run a high quality program, not as much as a brick and mortar, and it can be a cost effective measure, but um, it's not as inexpensive as just buying an online course. So that's um, that. Uh, now, academic achievement. What we're seeing uh, across the board is that it actually in some states, um, and I've studied this uh, across multiple states. On average, kids in online schools uh, will perform at least as well as students in the traditional school system as measured by the state standardized testing. So like in California, the STAR test or you know, other, other um, uh, tests like that. 
Um, there has been, um, uh, typically, for some reason, they tend to do a little bit better in English language arts and a little bit worse than math, but they're all right around the same average as their brick and mortar counterparts. So we're seeing that, in fact, some of the highest performing schools are, have been cyber schools. Just like other schools, depending upon the demographic of the student, um, they could be getting, uh, it's really, you want to look at apples to apples. So if you have an online school who's dedicated to serving dropouts and kids who are coming into the school with a 1.4 GPA, you know, what's their academic growth over the period of the year, not just their performance on the standardized test. So, um, it, online schooling is not for everybody and you're not going to have kids that are 100% successful. Uh, you're going to have kids that, that don't make it in the online school and they really need that face-to-face, -face, uh, uh, you know, they need to go to school every day, they need to see a teacher face-to-face, -face. they don't have the self-discipline, the skills to really be successful in the online environment um, and certainly this would not be for them. But for a lot of other kids and who can do it and do it well, not only do they excel, but some kids just knock it out of the park. So you kind of get the bell curve like you do in a traditional classroom. So really good nuanced answers. And, and um, Michael here is complimenting you. He says, at least I have to be honest and say I'm a little surprised to hear a cyber, a cyber charter school supporter say what you did about funding. Incredibly welcome to hear somebody say it, but surprised. So I think people are appreciating sort of the, the, the nuance there, which is, yes, from the financial standpoint, it, it is cheaper, but it's not as cheap as, as some would, would think it was because you are actually running a school. Um, and I think the, the response on the academic achievement is also nicely nuanced, which is it's going to depend on the particular student. Um, there are some questions here about whether the students coming in from being outside of school are I have, if there's been any kind of a direct comparison, um, and I'm not sure if you answered that fully, but what I'm hearing is that like in regular school, there, there's going to be a variety of achievement and performance, and it's going to depend largely on the student. Is that fair? That's totally fair. Um, yes and no. Uh, yes, generally that's true. However, we want to build and support systems for as many students as possible. So. Uh, you know, like for instance in, in schools, we actually have iMentors, which is another level of support. These are paraprofessionals whose whole role is to contact the students on a daily basis if necessary to find out how they can better be supported, what kind of support they need to keep, you know, teach them time management skills, online instructional skills, all of that. So uh, it, it, you know, it depends on the school, it depends on the, the supports that are in place. Good. Well, let me go quickly. We're, we're a minute away from finishing, and, and you deserve to finish on time. Um, there was a question about pay for teachers. Is it different online than it is in an old school model? Um, no, it's about the same because it depends upon, um, again, your model. If you've got a, a program, then that, that teacher is a district teacher, just, and this is just part of their teaching assignment. If you look at the, the charter school, um, uh, pay structure, the teachers are, are compensated approximately the same as every other teacher in a regular charter school, so it's about the same. Lisa, I really appreciate your coming uh, to be with us tonight. I'm giving, I'm clapping for you. Uh, so fascinating to hear your perspective, um, having talked to Elizabeth and now to hear someone who's actually sort of involved in the organizational side actually is involved in the organizational side of virtual schooling and, and really appreciate your time. If, if people want to hear more from you or learn more about you, is there an easy place to send them? 
Absolutely. Um, the best thing to do at this point, I don't have a website. Uh, um, of course, uh, so it's just my email address. Please email me. And again, that's at lisagillis at comcast.net. And if you want to know more about uh, my um, my school, it's www.insightschools.net. And I love, um, I would be more than happy to engage in deeper discussion with anybody. But um, Deborah, you asked, do I blog? Not yet, but I should. <laughs> well, wait, you don't have to answer it that way because now that Twitter's come out and it's only 140 characters, your guilt is less. You, you don't blog. But you, you should be Twitter tweeting, but you don't tweet, but it's only 140 characters, so there's not really any guilt there. Oh, my goodness. I, I suppose so. I'm a little afraid of that constant uh, you know, electronic leash, though. You know what I mean? <laughs> there's so many questions that, I, that we didn't get a chance to ask you. Uh, hopefully, there'll be another opportunity or, or some chance to, to continue the conversation with you. But I am sensitive to the fact that you are, uh, you've been up all day. So we're going to let you go. Again, thank you so much for for coming or clapping, feel free to just drop off. For those of you who'd like to stay for a short post-show, we'll do it. And I'm going to put up the slides of uh, our sponsorship from Illuminate and Sue Bloom and Associates. Uh, Charlene and her gang have sponsored the book purchases for the series, and that's most appreciated. And then I'm going to leave with the slide of the events coming up uh, over the course of the next couple months. Thanks so much, Lisa. Well, thank you, Steve, and thank you for sponsoring this. It's been a blast. I've loved talking tonight. So thank you again for the opportunity. Thanks, and take care. And uh, we, we want you to drop off because we want you to be able to go and get some sleep. <laughs> well, thank you. No problem. Thanks again. Good night. So one of the questions that, that I'll, I'll try and follow up with Lisa on at some point will be, I'm very curious as to the communication models for students in virtual schools and how much the learning management systems are getting used and uh, our social networks being used and just sort of how is that taking place and does that kind of inform the discussion about how those technologies will get used in traditional brick and mortar schools? I mean, are they sort of likely to be at the leading edge of effective communication where we could see that happening um, in traditional schools. Were there other questions that you, you could rather respond to that, or were there other questions you wanted to ask Lisa that we can kind of gather and, and um, hopefully bring her on an, an, another time to, to talk about? Leonard says, my experience is that this did not happen. Are you talking about the communication there, maybe? Feel free to raise your hand if you'd like to take the mic. I mean, I would assume that there's synchronous, like the Illuminate Sessions classroom kind of stuff. There's Moodle-like or Blackboard-like asynchronous teaching. But there are a variety of forms of communication that are taking place there that probably don't take place with students in a traditional brick-and-mortar environment. I think that's a fair assessment. Norman, I'm going to give you the mic. Thanks. Um, I just wanted to deal with that question. Uh, you can use all kinds of social networking things in school if you're just allowed to. I mean, one of the problems that happens in schools is that kids don't know any other things to do with their social networking tools. You can text each other as much about the materials that you're studying as as you can about anything else. That's all. 
So that's appreciated, Norman. I'm going to turn the mic off because I'm getting that echo. Tammy, I'd be interested in hearing from you if you're willing to take the mic on this issue. Uh, having had a child in virtual school, teaching virtually, do you think there are? Uh, do you think we're seeing any trends in terms of communication with teachers, students, and parents in these environments that will help us understand what what we should be expecting to see in traditional environments? Yeah, uh, I've had. Um, I've had one student in from fourth through seventh grade when Arkansas Virtual School first got started down here. Actually, it started out as virtual, the virtual school, and now it's a virtual academy because the funding changed from federal to state. So as a parent, I've had children in it. And then for us, it only went to eighth grade, so we don't have high school. So I started actually working with virtual homeschool group, putting it together so that we could do some high school stuff online with some of the same tools that I came into contact with with the virtual school. Now, communication, um, the way that the Arkansas did is Arkansas did a program that used the K-12 curriculum. And that one's kind of unique, I think, compared to a lot of the programs that you might be familiar with in that in that program, a lot of it is done by computer and a lot of it is done with real books. And the parents take a big role in that one. The, the, the teachers really don't directly teach so much. They do step in and have special classes when they're needed, but the parents do a lot of the teaching, and the parents are accountable to the instructors. Um, at the beginning of the year, the communication is that the, the teachers and the parent will contact each other uh, at least once, once every two weeks in the beginning. And if the progress is being made just fine, it can drop to about once every month to six weeks. And if, if a family is struggling a little bit, then it, it picks up. You get a little more contact. Um, you always have the instructor there, the, the teacher there to call if you need anything with resources. Now, the one thing that makes it hard, if you answer any questions about how a particular program is run, it's easy for somebody who doesn't know to think, OK, all programs are like that because it's, it's not. This one program might have it where the teachers are actually the ones teaching the, uh, the actual courses in an online environment in some form, whether it's synchronous or asynchronous. And some are like the K-12 program, where the parents, up to eighth grade anyway, are doing a lot of the teaching directly with their, their students. Even with K-12, though, at ninth grade and up, then it switches the model over to where the parents are no longer doing the instruction. But at that point, it switches over to where you've got uh, certified teachers that are doing it. Um, I don't know. Did I miss Did I miss answering question altogether? When you're talking about communication, um, I was figuring, okay, how does how does it work in the K-12 program with the the accountability calls? No, I think you're. We're definitely addressing the question, um, and I probably didn't do a very good job forming the question. But um, when you take an online course, most students are in some kind of a learning management system, whether it's Moodle or Blackboard mm -hmm. or a proprietary system. And I'm wondering if there's a way to gauge uh, the level of contact the students and the teachers have, and the, and the, say, the teachers and the parents have, versus what takes place in a traditional brick and mortar environment. Oh, OK. Um, well, obviously, with the the K-12 program, because the parent is doing the primary instruction up to eighth grade, the parent's definitely in the information loop, because the parent is very much a part of it. Um, and the feedback gets back to the accountability teacher that's holding them accountable to making progress. 
um, because as they work in the online environment, it updates automatically. When the students when the students go through a particular course, it shows that they've accessed the course that they've gone through. There's quizzes at the end, and the the teachers can tell how they're progressing. They can see all their scores. And it looks like Leonard is saying, and I think he was saying his son graduated from Pennsylvania Cyber Charter. Never had any contact with the teachers, so so it's a little bit different maybe than the K-12 program. But you did get the Blackboard progress reports daily. Contact was with an instructional supervisor. Well, I'm wondering if even just the fact that there is a learning management system in place in most of these um, virtual school environments uh, is different than in traditional school because I'm going to guess that for most kids in a traditional K-12 school they don't have any kind of a dedicated online um, communication system other than email. Anybody else wants to grab the mic, feel free. I'm going to give everybody my capability. And I think this probably just comes down to my own interest in learning management systems and social educational and social networks and trying to think about how we communicate. Go ahead, Norman. So Deb, my question was whether or not we could learn anything from how communication tools are being used in virtual schooling that will help us to predict a little the adoption of those tools in traditional brick and mortar schools. Steve, one of the things that, that uh, I mentioned Patrick Dixon's study that he did a couple of years ago with, with Michigan Virtual, I mean, just the fact that the CMS keeps statistics, if you have the time and the opportunity to go in and sort of look at what those things, um, you know, try to I guess, data mine that information that's there, you can really come up with some interesting correlations. And, and in a lot of cases, not necessarily surprising ones. I know one of the things Patrick found was that students that clicked more often in the Michigan virtual courses um, tended to do better in the Michigan virtual courses. Um, the amount of time that you access the content and the number of times you go back to something maybe speaks to some level of engagement in the course. Um, which may explain why those students did better. Um, of all the Necrol studies, they had eight funded that year. His was like three times, four times thicker than everyone else's. Um, so he did really do, I mean, he had basically a couple of grad students that spent six months just playing with the data to figure out what we could find out. Um, I doubt most virtual schools really have that time to be able to do that. And I'd suggest that most of most brick and mortar schools, probably just about all brick and mortar schools, simply don't have the infrastructure for it. Because um, as you indicated, there's really nothing that they would have that would kind of track those movements. I mean, most teachers, I imagine, don't even record all of the times that they call home on a student. So you wouldn't even be able to look at some sort of plan book and figure out, okay, you know, this teacher called 27 parents this month. That's a fascinating point, and I and I think maybe it was part of what um, Lisa was talking about in, in the in the well nuanced answers about costs, which are okay. So this is this is shown to be somewhat cheap, cheaper than traditional brick and mortar, but not you know um, 
not free or, or really, really cheap, but, but maybe even though it's um, only slightly less expensive, it carries with it an enormous amount of potential that's new because of all of this kind of data that becomes available and the tracking that becomes available. Do you think that was a part of what she was saying? Am I reading into it too much? I'm not sure. I mean, the 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 reason I made the comment about I was I was surprised, but I welcomed her comment about funding was because funding has been a big issue in a number of states. Um, the whole issue in in Wisconsin on whether or not they were going to allow these things to to happen in the first place was largely based on funding. Ohio's had several fights over whether cyber charter schools should be funded at the same rate. In Georgia, the single cyber charter that they have isn't funded at the same rate as as regular brick and mortar schools. And one of the things that that always comes out from that funding discussion is that it costs the same amount. Um, to fund, you know, to, to educate a child in an online environment as it does in a face-to-face -face environment. So that's why I was so surprised with what she said. Having said that, I mean, in all honesty, you do pay what you get for. In states where, um, you know, the funding is equivalent, they can obviously have the ability to do much more. Now, whether or not they do is a different story. Um, you know, I mentioned the K-12 Inc. as a good example. I mean, they are a publicly funded, you know, publicly traded company um, that essentially make money off of education tax dollars and make a tidy profit if, if their annual reporting um, last year is any indication. So um, the fact that they have more money doesn't necessarily mean that or if they get more money doesn't necessarily mean that they would put it into this kind of data mining process. I mean, if they did, I think that it actually would have the potential to really improve upon the education that's being delivered. May I jump in? <laughs> you, a lot of times I have found that people have mentioned that K-12, because it's a private company, that they're making money off of education dollars, but what they're doing is providing curriculum that's already developed and it's developed very well. And I come from a, probably a unique perspective because not only have I experienced the K-12 curriculum because my children have been in it, but also whenever my children reach the top limit because it stops at 8th grade here, some states go all the way to 12th, but it stops at 8th. And my son loved the online environment so much that I just felt I had to have some way for him to keep on going with it. So I started becoming active and working collaboratively with other parents that wanted to do online uh, course co-op called Virtual Homeschool Group. And I, I can tell you from being on both sides of it, one where you've got that a really, really nice, very well-developed curriculum provided to the schools compared to making it yourself. It is a lot of work, and if if school, there's just not a lot of choices out there yet to be able to get curriculum, um, and you've got a few companies that have seized the opportunity that said, hey, if we develop it, and there's not a lot out here, you know, we're going to get going. And and I teach online. I, I teach about six different classes online, and. There's just nothing to choose from for me to get that I can put on for mine. So I have to make my own classes. And it's a lot of work. And in this day and age, there just 
you don't have a lot of turnkey programs to turn to. So a lot of times when, when people discount the K-12 program because they say, okay, they're making money off of public schools. It's, no, they're providing something that right now is very rare. Turnkey programs, they even, states if they want to can have K-12 do it all. They can have K-12 arranged for all the materials to be boxed up and sent, or if the states want to, they can handle the boxing of the materials and get the materials out to the students. So um, it, they've been able to develop a pretty efficient system that I, I know in the Arkansas Virtual School, the I think it was the third year, they decided, well, we'll save a little money. We'll go ahead and have all the students return the materials to us. We'll rebox it and get it out to the students the next year. And they found that they worked their, their teachers to death that summer trying to keep up with all of this material coming in, reboxing it, getting it out to students. Where, And the next year, they went back to letting K-12 do it because they were all set up to do it on a large scale. And they found that it was actually cheaper than them trying to get all these materials reshuffled. So I, I just thought I would toss in a different perspective on, on having commercial companies create. It's no different than textbooks, really. We buy textbooks that aren't written by the schools. The textbook companies are making money off of it. But we don't look at textbook companies and, and kind of accuse them of making money off of the public education system. But it's not that different. Glad you're going ahead, Michael. Keep going. Well, one of the, the different things with the textbook companies is that the textbook companies don't just get handed the per-pupil allocation like the cyber charter schools do. I mean, with a cyber charter school, whoever authorizes it gets, depending on the state, somewhere between 3 and 7% of the per-pupil funding. The rest of it is just handed over to the cyber charter company. And I pick on K-12 only because they have the misfortune of being the only publicly traded one, so they're the only one that we know anything about their economics. Um, Connections Academy, Insight Schools that, that Lisa was from, um, Academic Advantage, uh, Event of Learning, I mean, you could go through the list. At the Virtual School Symposium last year, there were 13 of them that were set up in the exhibition area, and they're all the same. Um, the difference, again, the, the big difference with the textbook company is that I'm going to pay them on a contract basis, not on a per pupil basis. And it is a significant amount. Um, uh, and I never realized how much, uh, on, in all honesty, until um, I was part of a panel presentation at AECT this past fall, and David Wiley, who was one of the people behind the Open High School of Utah, which is an online charter school out there. Um, was part of the panel and he said the first thing that happened once they had their charter approved was that um, they they were contacted by K-12 Inc. And they were, you know, K-12 Inc. asked, you know, do you want to use our curriculum? Obviously they missed the whole point of the charter because open high school is actually based upon an open courseware excuse me, model. So they weren't going to pay for anything. But David being new to this area, um, the whole virtual schooling, the K-12 online learning thing, we decided to ask them, you know, what it would cost. Um, they were slated to have 500 students, and they were quoted a price of 1.2 million for 12 months of access 
for those 500 students. And then at the end of the 12 months, they would be left with nothing. Um, they'd have to buy it again. Um, a textbook company isn't an annual thing. So, you know, the, and, and I use again K-12 Inc. just as an example here. I, you could substitute any of the cyber charters there as an, and the, the example would still be just as true. Um, the problem is we don't know much about these folks. Um, you know, the other 12 that were sitting at the virtual school symposium in the exhibition hall, none of those folks provide very much in the way of details about their finances. Um, you know, that information there from, from Insight Schools was, was kind of interesting. And it came out of the, um, the, the whole issue they had in Wisconsin about a year and a half. So we've learned a little bit from, from the fact that the legislators in Wisconsin had to deal with it because the courts threw it back to them. Um, but beyond K-12 Inc., because they are publicly traded and because they have to publicly report, you know, we have no concept as to what uh, an Insight school in California does with its funding um, beyond the fact that they have to give so much to the, the charter school authorizer. So this is interesting, I think, because uh, I think it's just the, uh, that at some level there's some discomfort with the idea that this is a for-profit enterprise that doesn't feel like it has a check and a balance. Is that a sort of a fair assessment of, uh, Michael, of what you're saying? Um, partly. Um, the, the, the check and balance would be one issue. The other issue is it would be the same thing as somebody contracting McDonald's to run a brick-and-mortar school. I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about here. We're talking about um, using public education dollars to contract a private corporation to run the school, um, not provide a service in the school because you know when they do that to some, but we're asking them to do everything. We're asking them to essentially come in, take over the entire kit and caboodle, and run it. And I think that's what um, is the unease with a lot of people. Really, really interesting. Uh, Tammy, I appreciated your perspective as well. I mean, I think you know what you're saying is that it feels like it's a really good service and that it is cost effective. And and then Michael, you know, your point, um, you know, touching on this issue of um, are we turning over too much control for something we don't we don't have checks and balances on and we don't really know exactly what's happening. Are there um, are there any models of organizations who are doing virtual schooling who are private but but have um, some kind of a more um, open books, public facing policy? I, mean, I guess uh, David Wiley School. Um, well, I was going to say the, the, the open high school in, in Utah would probably be the, the only example of one. But again, based on the premise of your question that, you know, are there any schools that are using a private enterprise? They're not a private enterprise. It's, it's, they are an online charter school that um, the committee that runs or the board that runs the, the charter school is just using this, this open access, open source model. Um, there are a number of private, or sorry, public options that, that I think are well worth considering, and, and Florida would probably be the best example of that in the U.S. Um, British Columbia and Canada would probably be the other good example. 
Okay, I think we may need to leave that for tonight because my family's waving me into dinner. So uh, thanks for that good discussion. Um, hopefully it will continue. And sure appreciate your being here tonight. Sure appreciated Lisa's coming and um, uh, a lot of fun to hear from her. So uh, I'm going to close this up. Thanks for the good comments and the good discussion.